Please turn with me back to Philippians 1, where we were at the beginning of the service. Once you find that, hold your spot there and turn to the left to Romans chapter 15. So go ahead and hold your spot in Philippians 1, and then turn back to the left to the end of Romans, Romans chapter 15. I'm going to go ahead and put a slide up here in just a second. So here's what I would like to take a few minutes to do. I would like to spend more time than I would usually spend uh, giving a little bit of a historical background to our passage today. Now, I always know when I say the word historical that three people get excited and the rest get even more excited. That's what, right? That's the kind of, yeah, come on. So, um, but I really want to do this. There's two reasons. One, it just sort of helps us put our Bible together to see how these, these different sections of Scripture interrelate. So, that's part of it, is to help us put our Bible together. But the second reason is because I think it helps us, maybe this is just my, my generation, but you ever watch YouTube and, and you've got bad Wi-Fi? It's an illustration some of us can understand. And it's like, you know, 360 or whatever, 240, heaven forbid, you know, the resolution is like three pixels changing color, and then all of a sudden your Wi-Fi improves, and what happens? It goes to 1080p, high definition, and suddenly you can see everything clearly. This historical background, I'm hoping, will, will make it a little bit more high definition when we go to Philippians, a little clearer what was going on in Paul's heart and mind as he wrote, because again, we tend to sort of overly make these words detached from real human beings in real life. Of course, they're divinely inspired, but this is a real person writing from real experience. So, as Paul is penning the book of Romans, he is heading towards the city of Jerusalem, and he is collecting, giving offerings from largely Gentile churches, including the Philippians, remember? He's, he's, He's collecting money from these churches, and he's taking them with a group of people all the way back to the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem, and you see what he's doing? He's creating unity between largely Gentile churches and the home base, largely Jewish church. If the Gentiles are giving to the Jewish church largely, it's going to create more warmth and, and unity between what could otherwise be divisive. And he's talking about that at the end of Romans. He's heading toward Jerusalem. And this is all before Philippians is written, okay, years before Philippians. And here's what I want to do. I want to show you what Paul's plan was from Romans 15, because you're going to find out his plan did not come to pass, as he hoped. But he tells us in great detail what his plan was. So I'm going to handpick some verses here as we go. Romans 15, uh, look with me at verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 20. You're like, that's the, yeah, verse 20. And thus, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered in coming to you. Pause. Paul has not yet visited Rome when he writes Romans. He's never been there. He has not met many of these people. So he's writing this letter ahead of time, telling them about his future plans to come. And look at verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to where? Spain. 
and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, that includes the Philippians, right? They were Macedonians. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave, that is leave Jerusalem, for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to, now listen to this prayer request, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that is in Jerusalem, in that area, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So do you see Paul's plan? Paul's writing this letter in the year, don't go to sleep when I say A.D., years, okay? A.D. 57, and Paul is writing this letter, and he's going to send it from Corinth to Rome in the other direction, Then he's heading east. He's heading back to Jerusalem. He's got a lot, of this, a lot of money, frankly, that's been given generously, and he's going to give it to the saints in Jerusalem, and he says, please pray for me that I be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul knows that he's a wanted man by his former group, Remember the Pharisees? He used to be one. He still is one by definition, but he's no longer an unbeliever. And he says, okay, I'm going back, and a lot of people want me in prison or dead. The unbelievers in Judea, pray for me that no, you know, no riot breaks out, nobody grabs me, no one throws me in jail. Like, pray for me that I be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. So Paul actually does have a prayer for circumstantial things right here. It's a circumstantial prayer. And the Lord says, no, Paul, I'm not giving you that prayer. So the, the Romans prayed it, Paul prayed it, and the Lord said, nope, I'm not going to deliver you. He actually allows riots to break out. So here's what happens. Paul gets to Jerusalem, and while he's there, you know what happens? Riots, multiple riots. And Paul's life is on the line. He finds out about a conspiracy. Remember this, 40 men have agreed not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Those people became very thirsty and very hungry. So Paul finds out about it, and a couple hundred Roman soldiers take him about 100 miles away to another town called Caesarea, and guess what? Instead of Paul being free to leave Jerusalem and go to Spain through Rome and plant churches for the next four years, which sounds great, he's hoping it's the Lord's will, instead, Paul spends the next four and a half years in prison. Next four and a half years in prison. Flip with me now to Philippians chapter 1. So you see here on this map, he ends up in Caesarea, that northernmost city, and he's there for the first two years, okay? He's just sitting there. And, he, and while he's there, different people who are in control, you may remember these names. If you read Acts 21 to the end of the book, 21 to 28, it tells all this in detail. You remember Pontius Pilate is long gone. He was the governor. He's been replaced by Felix. Felix is the new Pontius Pilate, and he's talking to Paul. And while Paul's before him, Paul keeps trying to present the gospel to this guy, who's a major person, a Roman governor. 
Felix is replaced after two years by a guy named Festus, who's the new pilot, the new Roman governor of the area, and Paul presents the gospel to Festus. Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul. He's about to send Paul back to Jerusalem, and Paul's like, I don't think now's a good time for that. People there don't really like me, so he appeals to Caesar. Remember this? Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to the Supreme Court. Take me to Caesar. Uh, uh, Get me out of here, because Paul knew his chances back in Jerusalem were he'd likely be killed by a riot or by someone. So he has better chances appealing to Caesar, although Caesar may also have him executed. And several years later, he will in a different court hearing with Nero. So Paul gets a trip to, to, to go see Caesar. Let's go to the second slide here. And what you'll see is this green line takes us from Caesarea on the right all the way across the sea up to Rome. And this journey takes about four or five months. He ends up shipwrecked on the way, almost dies numerous times, gets bitten by a venomous snake. You thought you were having a bad morning, ladies and gentlemen. And Paul ends up finally in Rome. And when he gets to Rome, did he finally get his wish to meet the Roman Christians? Yes, but he's got shackles around his hands and feet, and he's under house arrest in Rome. And how long is he there? For another two years. So do you see it? Two years in prison in Caesarea, about half a year traveling with near-death experiences, and then two more years in prison waiting to see Nero, that wonderful man, okay? And he's, he goes, he's waiting to see Nero for two years. Finally, he will see Nero, and Nero is going to let him go the first time, and then he's going to see Nero a few years later, and Nero will have him executed a few years after that. So Paul is sitting in a Roman prison cell. Uh, He's sitting under house arrest, but he's sitting chained to Roman soldiers while he writes the letter to Philippians. Now, why do I take the time to tell you that? Let's compare Paul's agenda with what's happened. His agenda, give the money to the Christians in Jerusalem, be warmly accepted by them, not start a riot, fails to do that, not start a riot, and then head by probably boat back to Rome, see everyone there, greet them for the first time, then head to Spain, the other end of the Roman Empire, and spend probably the next few years or perhaps the rest of his life planting churches so that all the major cities of Rome from one side to the other would have a Christ-centered community, a church that would be vibrant and growing. Now, can you see that his desires are holy? Those are good desires. Those are Christ-honoring desires. Can you imagine being in Paul's position? You, you're, you're in your prime as a missionary, in your prime, and the Lord in His sovereignty has put you into handcuffs for four and a half of your best years as a missionary. Can you imagine if you were to write to the Philippians from this prison? He's writing towards the end of these years because he's about to see Nero. He makes that clear next week. We'll look at that. He knows he's near the end. So this is about four and a half years in. How would you write to the church? I can picture my wonderful heart. What has happened to me? Let me tell you what has happened to me over these last four years. While you guys have been enjoying your freedom, I have been chained to a Roman soldier around the clock. Every four to six hours, they change guards. I have all these different men. They're all hating the the God that I worship. None of them care a rip about the, the, the belief I have in the gospel. They're all these gruff, tough people. I can't go anywhere without them chained to me. I had this great plan, this great thing that was wonderful in my mind. The Lord has shut every door, and He's left me wasting away in prison for all these years. I don't have any problems with my heart. I'm just saying, that, that's, that's, that, that's, that would be my letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians, slightly different. So look with me, Philippians 1, he finally gets to his own situation in verse 12, 
And just let this verse rock us all back. Listen to this. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That is astonishing. I mean, can we be real for a second? Imagine that in the future in our country you get put in jail for your Christian belief. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Imagine that happens. Can you imagine writing a letter to this church if you were in prison down the road? Can you imagine writing a letter to to us that's full of joy and you're glowing over the advancement of the gospel in your prison? What kind of perspective is this? So, you know, we we talk about having a gospel-centered life, a great phrase. I've titled this sermon, What is a Gospel-Centered Life Really Like? What is a gospel-centered life really like? And Paul is going to show us here in vivid and powerful words, I'm quoting a, a commentator, it's when your joy is attached to the advancement of the gospel and not yourself. It's when your joy is attached to the advancement of the gospel and not yourself. One commentator writes, Paul maintains joy in ministry by staying focused on two things that are really the same thing, the gospel and glory of Christ. Paul's joy is focused on the gospel and the glory of Christ. And if those things are going up in the world, if they are advancing, if people are hearing and proclaiming the name of Jesus, Paul is thrilled. He is overcome with joy because his circumstances, his comfort, and his freedom are less important than the, than the glory and the spreading of the gospel. Um, okay, so let, let's think about this for a second. Number one, how do we kind of move in this direction? I feel a long way away. I complain about the stupidest things in my life. I, I can't imagine what Paul's going through. Here, here's, a, here's the first thing, verses 12 to 14. How do we grasp a gospel-centered life? Number one, we should set our aspirations on the advancement of the gospel, not self. We need to set our aspirations on the advancement of the gospel and not on self. So, look with me again, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How so? Number one, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So, Paul's the ultimate example of taking whatever difficult situation you are in in life and turning it to Christ. So, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And what does Paul think? Paul thinks, really, I'm not chained to you, buddy. You are chained to me. I get six hours with you, and you can't go anywhere because you're under Roman command. So, let's go. Let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. The Roman soldier like, what are you doing? I'll tell you about, I've met him. 
I met him. So let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is the part of the triune God. He came and lived the perfect life. He died on a Roman cross. The soldier's like, wait, what? Yeah, a Roman cross. He died in our place for sinners. He was buried, and he rose again to new life. You say, you don't, probably haven't heard about crucified victims coming back to life before. The soldiers, no, I haven't heard of that. That's because God raised him from the dead, declaring that he was innocent of all that he was accused of. But he died in our place, condemned as sinners like you and I. And now he has ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And let me tell you, Caesar is not kurios, the Greek word for Caesar, Lord. Caesar's not kurios. Jesus is kurios. Jesus is Lord. He's the sovereign one. He's the one on the throne. He reigns supreme over Caesar, your boss. And he's going to come again. He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the living and the dead according to righteousness And only those who have trusted in Him and repented of sin will stand blameless on that day. Roman soldiers, get me out of here. Somebody unchain me from this man. And what happens is Paul, there there were about 9,000 soldiers in the praetorium, in in this place. Okay, the 9,000 total. Now, Paul was not chained to all 9,000 of them. I'm sure he would have enjoyed that, but he, he's not. But he was certainly chained to many, many dozens and scores of them. And how did the whole praetorium find out about this? Well, no doubt the soldiers come back off their shift and they're like, guys, you know, they're back with all the other soldiers. They're like, this guy is strange. He's the happiest criminal I have ever met, this guy. We, we, every time I go in there, I'm chained to this guy. He will not stop talking about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who he says died and is no longer dead. He says he met him while on the road to Damascus trying to kill his followers, turned his life around, and now he's convinced that he's the greater Lord than Caesar himself. And these soldiers are spreading this gossip around, this gospel gossip around amongst their ranks, and apparently the vast majority of the 9,000 soldiers, guess what, working personally for Nero, are talking about Jesus the Messiah. At least that's what Paul calls him. And some of them apparently become Christians. That's an amazing thought. If you don't believe me, look at the end of Philippians. Last paragraph, chapter 4, verse 21. I think Paul must have had a special joy, (laughs) maybe a mischievous joy, as he wrote some of this. Look at this, 421. Greet, Greet every saint in Christ, that is the Messiah, Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, you hear that, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, some new converts. Look at verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is not subtle. They called Caesar Lord, and he says, "Uh uh-uh, nope, nope. I know the Lord of lords, the Lord of Caesar, and some of his own household have trusted in the true Lord, and they're believers, and by the way, they send you greetings. How fantastic is that? Paul must have had a little mischievous smile on his face as he wrote, those of, especially those of Caesar's household, send you greetings. So here's Paul, this, up to the world, this nobody, locked up in prison, forgotten about halfway for four and a half years. Here he is sitting in Rome, chained to Roman guards, spreading the gospel like wildfire right under Caesar's nose. And what's he he declaring? Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. 
Not saying there's not a respect for governing authorities. That's true. Paul wrote Romans 13. But he's saying ultimately Jesus is our Lord and He's the ultimate judge, not this this man I'm going to stand before in a short time named Nero. So this is a different perspective on our sufferings and our struggles. Where's Paul's joy coming from? Paul doesn't care about his circumstances unless… Let me start that over. Paul doesn't care about the comfort or discomfort of his circumstances. He cares about the advancement of the gospel. And when the gospel is advancing, Paul is the happiest guy in the room, even though he's in handcuffs. Okay, this all sounds really spiritual and nice. Paul always seems like he's wearing a cape. Like, your bullets just bounce off. It's the Apostle Paul. It's hard to humanize the man. I understand that. He's probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. Uh, that's, that's true. But seriously, I need to make serious progress in this area because I am not there. I worship so often comfort in my life. I am obsessed with things being easy. I am obsessed with, with all those kinds of idols. And you say, oh, is that really true? Yes. By the way, I grumble and complain about the silliest things in my life. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we should first be convicted of sin, but then we should say a pathway to joy. Because if you are trying to find your joy in circumstances, comfort, convenient, and your own name being lifted up, you will find yourself riddled with anxiety, discouragement, and a sense of hopelessness and maybe despair. So this is not mainly you're terrible, I'm terrible, trust in Jesus, although I can't say that's incorrect. But let's think about this. There is a pathway here to joy that will go beyond any joy that we can experience otherwise. And listen, we're not going to arrive at Paul's level overnight, but listen, for you right now, think about your own issues and struggles with these idols and just take the next step of obedience. Just repent. Just start by saying, Lord, help me. I believe what? Help my unbelief. Like, I trust you, but I don't trust you all the way. Help me, God. Help me to care more about the advancement of the gospel than the advancement of myself. So Paul finds great joy in that others are hearing the gospel. And also under point number one here, he also finds great joy from finding out that people are boldly speaking the gospel. Look with me at verse 14. Not just hearing, but speaking. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, that is believers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I just got to read here. Don't turn here, but this is in Luke's gospel. Jesus said these words, and they were fulfilled in Paul, among others. Jesus says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Paul is living that out. Before Felix, he proclaims Jesus, and Felix's wife, Drusilla. He proclaims Christ before Festus, even though Festus thinks Paul has lost his mind from all his learning, he says. He then proclaims Christ to King Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. 
He then ultimately is going to proclaim Christ. We don't have it recorded in detail in Scripture, but apparently before Nero himself, Paul would have proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, which, by the way, just real quick, look, at me, look with me at verse 7 again of Philippians 1. I want to add a little a deeper dimension to these words. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, defending and confirming, this is not just out of context. You you might just think this is like, you know, apologetics with your buddy. This is Paul referring to his legal defense of the gospel before official representatives. He is defending and confirming the gospel before governors and kings and the emperor. That's, I think, the primary thing he's referring to. And he says, and you Philippians are helping me out. You're, you're with me in this because you're helping supply my needs during this time. So, um, you may remember back in the 1950s, I don't remember this personally, <laughs> Some of you do. And in the 1950s, I remember hearing multiple pastors. One, R. Kent Hughes, a pastor I've been listening to recently who's retired now, has written commentaries. But R. Kent Hughes said in the 1950s, what happens? The story of Jim Elliott and the others who were martyred, who were killed for their faith as they were trying to spread the gospel to the Walrani Indians, Walrani natives. And while they did that, what happened was, you remember this? They, They graduated, all five of them graduated from Wheaton College. And for the next couple of decades, the Wheaton College Missions Department did not shrink. Now think, they graduated from Wheaton, they're missionaries, and all five husbands were speared to death. You think that the Missions Department would get smaller. I think I'm going to not take that major. Instead, what happened? The Missions Department at Wheaton exploded, their alma mater. It exploded for the next 20 years. What is that? R. Kent Hughes said outside of the Bible, his home church, his family, outside of his immediate surroundings, their martyrdom when he was a child was the most influential event in his entire Christian life to commit him to follow Jesus. What is that? There's something about Christians who, with all their resolve, follow Jesus and it goes really badly for them in this world. That actually strengthens the spine of other believers. When you see someone else for courage for Christ, take an insult, it doesn't make you want to step back. It often, as a believer, makes you want to step up. And he says here, his imprisonment has caused others to become more confident in the Lord, and they're now speaking the gospel more boldly and without fear. And so Paul has found another reason for joy. All right, now point number two. This is verses 15 to 18. Paul says, or rather, I'll say, and then I'll quote Paul, I'll say, number two, set your aspirations on the glory of Jesus, not self. So point number one is set your aspirations on the advancement of the gospel, not self. That's verses 12 to 14. Now verses 15 to 18, set your aspirations on the glory of Jesus, not self. So look with me. Something interesting happens here. Before I read it, So imagine this. You know, Paul's pretty well known by the Christians and even by non-Christians. He's an apostle. He's a big deal. Not that he treats himself that way, but he would have been a big deal. Paul is finally in Rome. Now, he's under house arrest, but he's still there. 
And what happens is Paul can no longer do his free evangelism that he wants to do, walking around town like he did at Mars Hill, just interacting with people, debating, preaching. He's, he's stuck in one spot. So he's kind of off the grid a little bit. So what happens is a lot of people are encouraged to preach in the gap that is there now that Paul's gone. Paul's absence has left a gap. Someone needs to step up in Paul's place. And many Christians step up out of a love for Paul and a desire to keep the gospel that Paul preaches moving. But there's a small group of Paul calls them brothers, professing Christians. They may have been genuine Christians who are a little bit envious of Paul. Now think about it. This is common. I know we, we want to act like we're, we're beyond this kind of stuff, not just for preachers, for anybody. Think about what it is you do with your life, what it is you devote time and energy to. could be your profession, could be a hobby, something you're good at, something that you're gifted at, that God's blessed you with. Is it not true that you tend to become the most internally competitive with people with similar gifting to what you have. Think about it. You're really good at doing this over here. You're really good at X. Someone else is really good at X, and they might be a little bit better than you, and everyone kind of sees that they're a little bit better than you. Suddenly, your joy and your ability to honor God by doing X doesn't mean so much anymore because this person can do it a little bit better, and they get a little bit more of the spotlight, and all that matters is who's number one, right? Who's the the most prominent? Well, Paul was a pretty good theologian, I would say. He kind of, you know, wrote Romans, you know, shows up for pastoral candidate. Hey, can I be the pastor here? Well, what's your resume? Well, I wrote Romans. Okay, yeah, you can be the pastor here. He wrote Romans. That's pretty good. Uh, Paul, Paul's got a pretty good resume. He wrote a lot of the New Testament books. He's doing pretty good as far as that goes. And these people, some of them called brothers or sisters in Christ, some of them go, you know what? I'm a little bit envious of him. And with him off the grid, the gap that is left as Paul has walked off the scene is a gap I want to fill because I want people to see me. I want, pe- I want to fill the gap. Now that he's gone, I can get the spotlight back. I can put myself on center stage. Now, this is, this is, again, a temptation amongst believers. And look how he describes them in verse 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, just hang with me for a moment. Many commentators pointed this out, and I think this is a fascinating thing to spend some time on your own thinking about. Hold your spot and go with me to Galatians, a few books to the left, Galatians chapter 1. And I I just won't have time to unpack this as much as I would like to, but this really is worth time to meditate on. So Galatians chapter 1. As you are turning there, think about this. There are people preaching the gospel out of bad motives, trying to jab Paul in prison, trying to, trying to one-up Paul in prison, okay? Now, if, if that was me, if I was Paul, I would be quite upset about that. I would be wanting to justify myself and, and kind of push back. Paul's actually happy. 
He's rejoicing that people who don't like him and are jealous of him are preaching the same Jesus he preaches, even though their motives are a mess. Now, that is fascinating to me because motives really matter in the Christian life. They really, really matter. Paul will condemn selfish ambition in the next chapter. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others more important than yourself. So he is not on board with bad motives. But Paul's rejoicing. How is that possible? Well, let's look at Galatians 1. There's a contrast. Another church, another problem. Look at verse 8, talking about false teachers. I'll start in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to, what? Distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, now just, let's just compare the two situations. With the Philippians, he's talking, there's some in Rome preaching Christ out of bad motives, but are they preaching the true Jesus? Yes. And so Paul says their motives are bad. I'm not okay with that. Neither is God, but I'm just happy they're preaching the true gospel. I'm rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is truly being proclaimed. Now go to Galatia. What's going on? There are people who are stepping in. Whether they had true motives or not isn't the point. They are preaching a distorted gospel of legalism, saying that you don't just have to believe in Jesus. You have to also obey the Mosaic law to be right with God. You've got to add a list of things to be right with God. And Paul says, let them be accursed twice. Now do you see here? You tamper with the gospel. Paul has no joy in the message you are proclaiming. He, he announces an anathema, a curse upon those people. But people who are preaching the true gospel, even from bad motives, Paul rejoices. Now, do you see how that's worthy of a lot more time than I have right now, but that is something to think through. Motives matter, but the content that is being spoken is of utmost importance in Paul's mind. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 1. Let me read through these verses one more time. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed." and in that I rejoice. So, when we set our aspirations, our passions, on the glory of Jesus, not the glory of self, we can start to attack envy and jealousy in our lives. See, so long as it's about my reputation, and if you or someone hurt my reputation, or lied about me, or said something that was deceptive about me, or just kind of jabbed me on social media in a way I felt was not justified, not that that would ever happen on social media. Um, Twitter is the place where the fruit of the Spirit leaves. It's amazing. So, um, so, so, you, you, so someone, someone says something just mean or unjust or unfair to you on social media or in person, or you hear about it through another, and you just feel this, this anger seething up. You, Paul says, listen, if the glory of Jesus is where our aspirations are, if that's where our joy and passion is, 
The glory of me can take the back seat. It is, it is not significant. So Paul is able to forgive and love these people preaching Christ from envious motives because he only cares about the glory of Jesus being proclaimed and the gospel being advanced. So it creates a peace and a joy in Paul that otherwise could not have existed. Now, uh, as, I, as I close here, just next week, we're going to look, Lord willing, at the rest of 18 through We'll see how far we get, maybe 26 or further. And Paul has been talking about his present struggles and issues, and now he's going to look into the future and see what might happen before, when he stands before Nero. Is he going to live or die after his encounter with Nero? And we are going to learn what it means to live a life, you know, when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain, we're going to learn something about what those words actually mean in the context in which they stand. So before I pray, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of us in this room know the Lord Jesus. We're, we're believers in the Lord Jesus. But let's just say this, whether you're not a believer or you're just a struggling believer, if you're falling into some of these traps of joylessness, anxiety, envy, jealousy, lack of peace, where is it in your life that the advancement of self has taken primary position? Where has the glory of self taken the steering wheel in your life and is driving you? And where are areas where you need to turn from that sin, repent, which just means to turn away, to say, I don't want to be this way anymore. God, help me turn from this and help the advance of the gospel be what drives me and the glory of Jesus be what fuels me. Because then my joy is secure, it is stabilized, it is put in something that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and something I cannot ultimately lose. So I'm going to give you just a quick moment of silence just to talk to the Lord if there's anything he's put his finger on in your conscience, and then I will pray for us and we will sing. Heavenly Father, show us that letting the gospel be our passion and the glory of Jesus being what drives us, show us that that is not a joyless life of duty and joyless, dry law-keeping. Show us that your law is the path of life, that honoring you and advancing the gospel is what we were made for, that the glory of Jesus is what our soul is designed to enjoy, Help us to find our identity and worth in who you are, what you have done for us, and help us from that confidence of righteousness in Christ live a life that passionately pushes the gospel forward in our own life, in those of the members of this church, our families, throughout Athens, and then throughout the whole world. Lord, give us that joy of putting the gospel and the Lord Jesus first in our heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.